Amen. All right, saints, if you can, open your Bibles to the New Testament book of Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. We're going to be looking at just this one portion here in verse 3. And what Hebrews 9 verse 3 declares is, And behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle which is called the holiest of all. We're going to be looking at this morning of really what it means to come behind the second veil. What it means to come through that veil that was rent and come into that very place that Scripture calls the Holy of Holies. Now we've already looked at Hebrews chapter 6 verse 19 and 20 which declared this hope we have as an anchor of the soul both sure and steadfast and which enters the present behind the veil where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become the high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So we've already looked at here that, that we have this beautiful anchor, this hope that is sure, steadfast, coming behind the veil where Jesus has entered. And so now we need to, in a sense, begin to comprehend the context of the meaning of the veil here as the author of Hebrews goes through and say, this is the sanctuary that is there in the Old Covenant. This is the sanctuary that Moses had built, had designed through you know, the, the leading of the Spirit that God had given Moses, the understanding of the copy. And so what is this that we begin to look at here as the author of Hebrews begins to use the veil in the context of the sanctuary. Let's keep this in context. If you would, back up to chapter 8, verse 13, just prior to where we're reading here. But in chapter 8, verse 13, it says in that he says a new covenant. Mark that. He, that is God, says a new covenant covenant. He doesn't say here's another covenant. He doesn't say here's a different covenant, a different covenant. He removes the old and he replaces it with a new. Let's keep reading here in Hebrews 8:13. And that he says a new covenant he has made the first obsolete. And then he declares this, now what is becoming obsolete and is growing old, is ready to vanish away. So what God has done in a sense is this covenant has become old. It's become to the point where it's vanishing, and it's ready now to simply depart. And so God, in a sense, through this new covenant, he has annulled the old covenant. He's not making a second covenant. He's not making a different covenant. He's making a brand new one, which means the old one is gone. The old one is annulled. And why is that so important to understand? Well, if you're familiar with what an annulment is, if you are married and you're, you have an annulment to your marriage, what that means is this, it's just as if the first marriage had never taken place. It erases it, it wipes us out, it takes away that legal contract. That's what an annulment is, it's just as if it's never happened. And so what happens is, because the old covenant is annulled, now what happens is, to the Jewish believer, this is going to involve a complete 
change in what the, the Hebrew believer will look at, the objects that he now has to change to look to, this is what worship is. I'm no longer going to be able to look at the tabernacle. I'm no longer going to be able to look at the temple, the altar, the sacrifices. Why? Because in just a few short years, this is all gone. It will all be gone. In the sense that you have Rome that is already coming into the land, beginning to occupy. And so we see here that this temple, the tabernacle is going to be gone. So as it passes away in reality, now what happens is they choose now between this old covenant, which is about to pass away and you, they won't have any objects to look at anymore, to a new covenant that is going to be taking place. In other words, they're going to have to leave, in a sense, what would be known as this dark shadow, and they're needing to come into this glorious new light because the tabernacle, it's a type, it's a shadow. So you're leaving this shadow. You're coming into this new understanding of what the light is. I want to give you one passage just to jot it down. I'm already there and going to read it, but in 2 Corinthians Chapter 4, verse 6. Let me read it to you. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. See, all of a sudden we see these things are shadows, these things are tights, but God gives a brand new light. And this light that he gives is the light of the knowledge of the glory of God as we look at the person, the work, the ministry of Jesus Christ. And so we see here that the Jewish person now has to come to grips that everything that was connected to the law and to the commandments and to the ceremonial law and to the tabernacle and to the priesthood and to the sacrifices, everything amounts to nothing more than a type. All of these things are now a type, a pointer to this new and better covenant that God has. So two verses I just want you to look at. One is found in, in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 22, and it simply declares, and so much more Jesus has become the surety of a better covenant. And in Hebrews 8, 6, he says, now he has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also the mediator of a better covenant which was established on better promises. Do you understand that this old covenant that has passed away, that has become annulled or obsolete, is now given way to this new and better covenant? And so what happens is now the Jewish person no longer looks at the tabernacle because it's not there, no longer looks at the temple because it's not there, no longer looks at the priest and the sacrifices because they're not there. Now they begin to look at the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And understand that we looked at last Wednesday or last Sunday that, that he is the anti-type. And think of it this way. The anti-type is simply the completion of a type. You have a type. And then it comes over to the completion called the anti-type. And once the anti-type, once Jesus Christ has appeared, the type 
has served its purpose. In other words, it's not needed anymore. And so think of it this way. When we were children, I don't know if you as a child had toys. Now, the toys are what? The toys are going to be a representation of the hopes that you have that once you're older, this is who you are. Now, see, when I was a kid, I had Hot Wheels, loved Hot Wheels. I had G.I. Joes, loved G.I. Joes. And what happened was this. The, the crazy thing is I don't play with Hot Wheels anymore. And I became a United States Marine. And so you think about what these toys are. And the toys are a type. It's a representation of a hope that eventually you seek to fulfill. I mean, think of what your favorite toy was and understand that this is just the beginning of type. I mean, the girls had, you know, dolls and they had Barbies and they had easy bake ovens. And some girls had G.I. Joes and like, this is what I want to be. But it's a type. It's a representation. And so, but as we grow older, what do we do? We leave the toys behind. We leave those representations behind. We leave those types behind. And then we come into what? A new and greater reality. I don't deal with Hot Wheels, but I do deal with cars. I do deal with trucks. I do deal with massive vehicles now, much larger than Hot Wheels. And so another way to see it is like this. When contractors make a large building, what they'll do is they'll put up scaffolding and then the scaffolding allows them to deal with the outside of the building as it gets higher and higher. Now, what do they do once the building's finished? They get rid of the scaffolding. See, the scaffolding served its purpose, allowed for the construction of what the main anti-type is going to be. So you don't need these shadows, these things surrounding it. Now that the building is complete, the the, the scaffolding is removed. The scaffolding is taken away. In a sense, think of it like this too, that when we deal with the changes of seasons here in Wisconsin, that you do what? You adapt to the change of the season. I don't think anyone here came in with scarves and mittens and hats and thermos underneath your clothes you know, you didn't do that. Why? Because it's now spring. You adapt to the change. You don't say, well, listen, I'm a Wisconsinite. I will always wear this, this, this Nanuka the North hat. I'm always going to wear gloves. I'm always. So, you know, you think about this just because people go to Lambeau Field doesn't mean you have to dress like an Eskimo. You adapt to the seasons, and once one season has changed, you go into another season. You don't hold on to the things of the old season anymore, and that's what these types and anti-types are. You now, when God says, I'm moving you on from the tabernacle and from the temple, which are shadows and types, I've moved you into this new season, a new covenant, the work and the ministry and the person of Jesus Christ. Now you leave the other things behind. Now you need to come into this new season. And so to look at this, and I want to give you a balance of what we're going to be looking at here as we do see this veil, as we see it in the context of the sanctuary. So the balance is this, that each and every type in the Old Testament has a value. In other words, each and every type is going to be used by the Holy Spirit to reveal in us one more aspect of the person 
and the ministry of Jesus Christ. As you look to the things of the tabernacle, you begin to see, oh, Jesus, this is what you've done, and this is what you've done, and this is what you've done. Let me give you an example. As you go into the, the tabernacle proper, you would first come to an area on the outside where you'd see this bronze altar, and you'd see the bronze laver. And so when you look at the bronze altar, you realize, oh, this is a sacrifice. And you go, oh, yeah, it points to Jesus Christ as a sacrifice. As you would go inside the sanctuary, you'd see other instruments, and you'd see the, um, there in the darkness, there's a menorah that brings light, the candlestick. And you realize that, yes, Jesus, this is another part of your aspect, that in this darkness, and there's darkness everywhere, that only you are the light. And so those kind of things will be represented as we look to here these types. The types are needed and required because they give to us a greater understanding through the Holy Spirit of the work of Jesus Christ. We understand, yeah, you were the sacrifice, but you're also the light of the world. You're also the bread of life. And each type gives us a greater understanding, layer upon layer upon layer of who Jesus is and his work. So understand that God did not delete the Old Testament. It's not when Jesus came, let's just get rid of everything from Genesis to Malachi. You don't need it anymore. No, he kept it for a reason. He kept it. Where it says in Romans chapter 15, verse 4, let me just read this to you. It makes this statement, for whatever things were written before, speaking of the Old Testament, were written for our learning that we through the patience and comfort of the scriptures, might have hope. That we can have a greater understanding of what Jesus did. So understand, although all these things amount to nothing more than a type, don't just throw them out because they are so necessary to us to understand more and more and more who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. So just keep in mind that God did not put away the Old Testament, that we actually understand that there are reasons that God says, I'm going to add to these things. Let me give you one more example. You know that we've already studied that mysterious Melchizedek. Now, what was interesting is we've come to understand that Melchizedek is the more perfect priesthood. He is the eternal priesthood. But note this, after God established Melchizedek, there in Genesis, that he went on to, in Exodus, make another priesthood. Now, he already had the perfect one. He already had the eternal one. Why does God, when he has this perfect one and has eternal, why does he make another type? Why does he make the Aaronic priesthood? So he already has the perfect, he already has the eternal, but yet God wants to establish what? A type. And so you can't just throw it out. It's an understanding of you and I can understand more and more of who Jesus is and his work and his ministry. I want to compare for just a moment some aspects of what the scriptures declare is glory. Because what we're going to note here as we look in verse 3 is when you look to the veil and the veil is rent, that we come into what is known as the holy of holies. We come into the very glory of God. And so what I want to compare in scripture is this. As we look to types, 
as we look to these shadows, I want to show you how Scripture defines there's glory and there's greater glory and then there's even greater glory. Now, just because there's a greater glory does not mean what? That the first glory is insignificant. It means that it's glorious, but compared to the last glory, yeah, it does become insignificant in as much as what? In as much as it's a comparison. But it doesn't mean that that glory was insignificant on its own. It's only insignificant compared to this larger, greater glory. Why? Well, think about this. You can say, all right, well, let's, let's just see where, where Lowell stands with this whole COVID weight gain thing. And then you say, wow, Lowell, you put on 20 pounds. You really earned the COVID-19 standard. Now, there's going to be others that say, Lowell, that's nothing. That's nothing. I put on 60 pounds for COVID. So although my weight gain would be glory in a sense, that's a joke, someone else's could be even more glorious and it doesn't mean that mine is insignificant, which means I need to eat a salad once a month now. And so it doesn't mean that, that that's not going to be a process that I got to deal with. It just means comparison, like what? It means there can be a greater glory. And that's what we look to here. So I want to show you aspects of the glory and the greater glory. The first is this. In Psalm 19, verse 1, you guys know the passage. I'm simply going to just, you know, declare it to you because it says in Psalm 19, verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God. We all know that. We all believe that. We've all understood that. And so if the heavens declare the glory of God, realize that in the very beginning of the book of Genesis, it took God, not that he had to, but he did, he took six days to make creation. Six whole days to make creation. And in Genesis chapter 1, verse 16, on the fourth day, it said that God had made the sun and the moon, and then he made the stars also, as if it were an afterthought. Oh, yeah, let's make a billion, billion stars out there, too. And he just does it also. So think about this, that the very heavens that declare the glory of God took at least the universe six days because he made the earth and everything on it. But when he made the heavens, he did that in one day. And in that amount of time, the scriptures say, God, you made the heavens in one day. You created the heavens and the earth and everything that's in them. And through this, either the one day or the six days, however you want to look at it, he created the, the heavens and God says, it's glory. The very heavens declare my glory. Now think about this. In Exodus, and I want to read to you just a portion of scripture, in Exodus chapter 34, I want to start reading in verse 27. I'm going to read all the way down to verse 28, so just a couple of verses. But let me read this to you. In Exodus chapter 34, beginning in verse 27 and 28, then the Lord said to Moses, write these words. For according to the tenor of these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water, and he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Understand that God created in his glory 
the entire heavens, which declare the glory of God, six days or one day, depending on how you want to look at it. And then we see here it takes him 40 days, 40 days, not just one, 40 days dealing with Moses. And he takes 40 days in instructing Moses in the law and the commandment and the, impl in the implementing of the tabernacle and the sacrificial system and to make a copy of this heavenly sanctuary. And that's what it says there in, in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 5. Let me read it to you. Who serve a copy and the shadow of the heavenly things as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he, that is God, said to Moses, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. So you think about this, and then if you make a note here in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10, the very first part of the verse says this, speaking of the law, for even what was made glorious. The law itself was made glorious. So as you note this, the heavens declare the glory of God. He takes either one or six days to make it. The law itself and everything was made glorious, and God takes 40 days to implement that. And so keep in mind that here, God himself now begins to take and make this tabernacle his dwelling place. How glorious is that? I want to read to you here in Exodus chapter 25, beginning in verse 17. I'm going to read through verse 22. Exodus 25, 17, God says to Moses, you shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two and a half cubits shall be its length, a cubit and a half its width. And you shall make two cherubim of gold of hammered work, and you shall make them at the two ends of the mercy seat, make one cherub at one end, the other cherub at the other end, and you shall make the cherubim at the two ends of the one piece with the mercy seat. And the cherubim shall stretch out their wings, covering the mercy seat with their wings, and they shall face one another. The faces of the cherubim shall be toward the mercy seat. You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I will give you. And notice what he says here in Exodus 24, verse 22. And there, or Exodus 25, verse 22. And there I will meet with you, and I will speak with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim which are on the ark of the testimony about everything which I give you as a commandment to the children of Israel. So think about this for a second. The heavens to be created in one day or six days declare the glory of God. But the law that he takes 40 days, he says, and this here which is made glorious. Now this tabernacle is made even more glorious. Why? Because the presence of God is there. Think about how this is now even more glorious. And then we see here, that all of this glory becomes what? It becomes just a type. Just a type. And it becomes a shadow of what? Of the type, the person, the work of Jesus Christ has even more glory now 
than, than what the creation of this tabernacle. Why? Because God himself in John 1.14 became flesh and tabernacled among us. Jesus now doesn't just come and say, I'm going to just come and enter in and be in this one part here of the tabernacle where you got to move it and you got God becomes flesh. God dwells among us. The word became flesh, dwelt among us, tabernacled among us. And so we see what? This is even a greater glory. So you have the glory of the heavens. You have the glory of the law. But then you have what? Even a greater glory, Jesus Christ, who now comes. And so when you think about the heavens declare the glory, but what are the heavens compared to Jesus Christ? The, 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 the tabernacle, the law, the sacrificial, they, de, they declare they are glorious, God declares. But compared to Jesus Christ, they are only what? They're a type. So do you understand how there's glory and more glory and more glory now, here's that point again. Just because you're in a comparison, and in the comparison it seems so pale and so insignificant, it doesn't mean that it's insignificant. It doesn't mean that it meant nothing. It was glorious. But in comparison, it's like, <laughs> that's comparing the most greatest of the finite to the infinite. And so the prophets were amazing, but Jesus is infinite. Moses was amazing, but Jesus is infinite. The law was amazing, but Jesus is better. Everything we look at, Jesus is better. And that's what we begin to see, and this is what we're going to look at here when we come to this understanding of what the veil is here in this new covenant. Because God himself, what we begin to see is this, look at Hebrews 9, verse 11, for just a second. It says, not with the blood of bulls, wait, verse 11, but Christ came as a high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands that is not of this creation. So we see that what God begins to do is, God says, although this tabernacle was amazing in itself, there's now in comparison something so much greater. And that's what here in Hebrews 8.13, it says, he says a new covenant. He made the old, the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete is growing old and is ready to pass away. Now when you come into Hebrews chapter 9, verse 1, he says, then indeed, the word can be translated truly, or verily, verily, and so we understand here that God, although he had this Melchizedekian priesthood, he still divinely institutes this Aaronic priesthood. Notice what it says in chapter 9, verse 1. Then indeed, even the first covenant, this is what was established with Moses, had ordinances of divine service. See, God says these are works that have to be there. These are works that need to be accomplished. And as we look to these works, what we begin to see is this, that God here says the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and it had an earthly sanctuary. 
So we see this first covenant had this service. So the tabernacle itself in verse 2 says what? The tabernacle was prepared. God wanted it built. He wanted it established. He wanted this type set out. And so here, this Old Testament temple should be sought after. It should be looked at. It should be there for our learning, and it should be magnified. So when we see here what God had established through this tabernacle, it was needed. It was necessary. God divinely instructed it, and as he instructs it for divine service, and so this tabernacle under God's leading was prepared. Now, although it was prepared, keep in mind that as we already looked at it in, in Hebrews 8, 5, it said this, who serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. As great as these things are that God wanted to do it, it had to have what? It has a deeper meaning when it points to the person, the work of Jesus Christ. And so we see here, he said, let's look at how the tabernacle um, begins to picture Jesus Christ. And not only does it begin to picture Jesus Christ, but it begins to picture his work and our relationship with him. And so as we look now here in chapter 9, as he begins to outlay the tabernacle, he does in verse 3 points out here the veil. Why is that important? Well, what I want to do is this. I want to take and show you three locations dealing with the tabernacle and in a little bit more detail in how they begin to represent Jesus Christ. When you have the tabernacle proper, you have something which is known as what? Outside the tabernacle. And outside the tabernacle, you have this bronze altar and you have the bronze laver. Now what we see is this, that altar that was there is now outside the tabernacle. Then you go inside the tabernacle and you have those furnishings that we looked at on Wednesday. You have the lampstand, you have the table of showbread, you have this altar of incense, and then you have this veil that we're looking at and behind the veil, then you have the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat and that's here where God is going to meet. Now, make note of this. The altar and the laver were outside, which means what? Everybody could see it. There was no one who was there in the area of Israel who could not see this altar, who could not see the laver. You could see it. And so keep in mind that that altar represented once the sacrifice. And so when you look to that, Jesus Christ died, what, publicly there upon a cross. Everyone could see him. Everyone knew that Jesus died publicly. So when you see here this type, although the altar was outside, it was public, people could witness what was happening. The smoke was ascending. You'd realize that now you picture Jesus Christ and his death on the cross, and it was not hidden from man. But then you have other aspects that are hidden, that the average Israelite could not see what was happening inside the sanctuary. You'd have to go into the first veil, or at the temple, you'd go through the door. And as you would go through, then all of a sudden, there would be these instruments, these um, furnishings, if you will, and you'd have the, the lampstand, you'd have the table of showbread, you'd have that altar of incense, and all of those represent what? service. 
It represents service. So although everyone could publicly see what Jesus Christ has done, keep in mind that God then limits, he limits to just a certain few that says, I want you to serve me. Although everyone can see this, he calls certain ones, and of course we know it's the priesthood. He said, I want you to come in and serve me. Now, not only do I want you to come in in this service, but the average person can't serve the Lord in these ways. They can serve him in other ways, but not in this prescribed way, which really represents what? Everything that Christ has done. He's the light of the world. He's the bread of life, and he ever lives to make intercession for us. So when we see these truths of what happens on the inside, yes, they do represent Christ, but it also represents what the service can be. And so keep in mind that there's now a limitation. Although everyone publicly sees the altar, everyone publicly sees the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, when it comes to service, he now limits us. Not everyone can serve God according to the ways that he calls others to serve. And then you have what? Then you have this veil, which is now a separation. And that's really what the term veil means. It is a separation. And so when you have that place, which is the holy place behind the veil, and which is the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat, that what we begin to see now is when you come to the second veil, now even the priests are excluded. And the high priest is also excluded where he just can't come in at any time, that he only comes in once a year. We looked at this passage on Wednesday, but I want to read it to you here today because in Leviticus chapter 16, as we look to these comparisons, Notice what he says in the first four verses. Now the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they offered profane fire before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron your brother not to come in at just any time into the holy place inside the veil. So now Aaron is warned, you can't come in at just any time. He says this, I will appear in the cloud above the mercy seat, verse 3, thus Aaron shall come into the holy place with the blood of a young bull as a sin offering and a ram as a burnt offering, and he shall put the holy linen tunic and the linen trousers on his body, and he shall be girded with the linen sash and with the linen turban. He shall be attired, and these are the holy garments, therefore he shall wash his body." He was not to be allowed to come in at just any time. He was only allowed in once a year, and that was after he sacrificed this bull and the goat. And so what we were seeing is this, that this was God who initially says, I want to, everyone to see Christ in his atoning death. Everyone sees that. However, God only allows certain ones to come and serve him. And what that is, is this. There's ministry for the Lord, and there's ministry to the Lord. And the ministry to the Lord actually builds up a point of a little more intimacy. But keep in mind that what that veil represents is this. It represents that here, that, that no one, no one can come in and have a lasting, intimate relationship with God. The high priest would come in with blood, not just come in. He would come in with blood, and then he would sprinkle the blood, and then he would get out. 
He wouldn't stay in there. It wasn't like, oh, Lord, it's just so good to be here. Let me just pull up a chair and hang out with you. That didn't happen. And so understand what was going on here when it comes to these areas of the sanctuary. Public on the outside, a little more private, and then exclusive, but a very limited exclusive coming in through the veil. That's what the sanctuary proper the temple proper represents that no one could come in to a place of remaining in intimacy and fellowship. But now, take a look at Hebrews chapter 6, verse 20 for just a second. In Hebrews chapter 6, beginning in verse 20, it says, Therefore the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus having become the high priest. And so we see here that he enters as the end of verse 19 in Hebrews 6, he enters the presence behind the veil. Jesus Christ comes in now behind this veil. And in Hebrews chapter 10, let me read to you verse 19 and 20 as well. In Hebrews 10, beginning in verse 19, therefore, brother, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. Do you understand what is beginning to be seen here? That in the Old Testament, it showed people could witness the sacrifice, but they couldn't serve God, and no one could have lasting intimacy with God. And what does Jesus do in comparison? He simply rips the veil. And he says, you all can come in now. You can all who are in me, you will enter into the presence, the very glory of God behind the veil, and you can stay there. Talk about comparisons. And so as we look here, we begin to see what God has begun to show us. Now that you understand how incredible Jesus and his work is, let's take a look at just one other aspect. Because when we take a look at the Old Testament, when we take a look at the covenant and the tabernacle and the temple, what here the author of Hebrews tries to get through to us is this. The Holy Spirit removes the veil that Moses sets before the face of every Jewish person. Moses with his old covenant and his earthly tabernacle, the earthly temple, what happens is this, this here, what Moses does, creates another veil which stops people from seeing the glory of what Jesus Christ has done. They're now stuck on this Old Testament, this Old Covenant that is now faded away and where, you know, Hebrews 8, 13 says it's ready to vanish away. And so in the same way as this, you know how at night when you're there in the desert and the stars are incredible? But what happens to the stars when the sun comes out? As incredible as the stars are, the sun comes out. You can't even see their light. You can't see how spectacular they are because you've got the brilliance of the greater light. And that's what here happens to this area of the tabernacle and the sanctuary. I want you to please turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We've already quoted from this area twice, but I want you to look at here what the Holy Spirit is trying to say about this veil that Moses puts over. 
So we see the actual veil in the sanctuary. Now let's look at how that veil is represented on the spiritual level when you look to Moses and what he does in the tabernacle and the law and the covenant. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6, notice what it says. Who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant. Now keep in mind, we are now ministers of this new covenant, not of the letter, not of the, the, the commandments and the letters and, and the, the law. He says this, not of the letter, for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. So when he makes this statement that we're ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. And didn't we just, you know, look at last week how the Spirit, now what the Spirit writes on our hearts, how we can respond to God. And no longer do we need the written law because now the Spirit impresses upon our heart as we draw near. We just know. And so we see that he's made us ministers of this new covenant, not the old, not a different, not the second, because the old has passed away. It's now brand new. It's not of the letter, but it's of the spirit. For the letter itself kills. It causes you to do what? Shows you're a sinner, shows you're separated from God. And he says, the soul that sins, sins shall die. And so we understand here the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Now he says this in verse seven. Read with me. But if the ministry of death, now, this is the law. This is what was written there on the tablets. If the ministry of death, written and engraved on stones, was glorious. Now, keep in mind that God says this ministry of the law was absolutely glorious. It wasn't diminished. It wasn't erased. It wasn't insignificant. Just comparatively to Jesus Christ, it seems insignificant. But if this ministry of death, verse 7, written and engraved on stones, was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not look steadily on the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away. Now, for just a second, I want to read to you one portion of Scripture. This Scripture is found here in Exodus chapter... Thirty-four, beginning in verse 29. In Exodus 34, beginning in verse 29, it says, So now it was so when Moses came down from Mount Sinai and had the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hand, and when he came down from the mountain that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone while he talked with them. And when Aaron and all the other children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. And verse 31, Moses called them, and Aaron and all the rulers of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. And afterwards, all the children of Israel came near, and he gave them as commandments all that the Lord had spoken with him on Mount Sinai. And from when, and when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put the veil on his face. But whenever, verse 34, Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would take the veil off until he came out, and he would come out and speak to the children of Israel. 
and whatever he had been commanded. And whenever the children of Israel saw the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone, then Moses would put a veil on his face again, and he went in to speak with him. So this is what Moses would do. He'd go in with God, take off the veil, and just the glory of God would just imprint upon Moses, and he would come out shining. And the people were a little bit nervous. You know, if I was up here glowing, you'd be a little bit nervous too. And so I would, I would, I would veil myself. But here Moses, as he veils himself, understand what's happening. The reason he veils himself, come back now to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And it makes this statement, verse 7 once again, if the ministry of death written and engraved on stone was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not look steadily on the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, the glory that was passing away. Get this for just a second. When Moses was receiving the law, the law made Moses' face glow. The law was glorious. But here was the problem. The law, as it says here in the, end of verses, in the end of verse 7, that glory was passing away. You could almost say that it was growing old and it was ready to vanish away. And so here, this glory that was there was vanishing. And then it says in verse 8, Now, how will the ministry of the Spirit be not more glorious? So if this ministry that Moses had which was made his face glow, but that glory began to fade. The glory of Jesus Christ with the Spirit is what? It does not fade, my friends. It is there. It just grows and grows and grows. Why? Because the closer you get to Jesus Christ, the more just that glory of God just comes and impresses upon you and me because we're able to enter boldly behind that veil, come with Jesus Christ. Now in verse 10 of 2 Corinthians 3, for even what was made glorious had no glory in, res in this respect because of the glory that excels. And all he's saying was, comparatively, as glorious as the law was, when you compare it to the glory of Jesus Christ, it had no glory. Doesn't mean that it was insignificant. It just means that in the comparison, it falls so short. Now verse 11, for if what is passing away, in other words, the law, the tabernacle, the system, if what is passing away was glorious, then what remains, Jesus Christ, is, as we begin to see here, is more, much more glorious. Therefore, since we have this hope, we use great boldness of speech, unlike Moses. Now note this in verse 13. Unlike Moses who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away, but their minds were blinded for until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament, because the veil is taken away in Christ. Verse 15, but even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. Verse 16, nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. 
So understand what's being said here. In verse 13, unlike Moses who put a veil over his face, why did he put a veil over his face? It says here, so the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. See, we think Moses put the veil on because I'm so humble, I don't want you to see my glory. The reality is this, Moses put the veil on because he didn't want the people to see the glory was fading, the glory was fading, and the glory was fading until he went back into the sanctuary and spent some time with God. And then he could come out. Now understand, Moses was very unique in this ministry because Aaron the high priest couldn't just go back into the sanctuary, talk with God. Moses had already been on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights, received this. He comes and whenever he talks to God, this very special place because Moses had this tabernacle set up before the initial tabernacle was made. Once it's made, God doesn't meet with Moses. He meets with Aaron. And so Moses leads that one ministry over now to Aaron. But understand, Moses puts a veil over his face according to verse 13 of 2 Corinthians 3 so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. Now, this veil that stopped the people from seeing what was passing away, the glory on Moses' face, is the same veil that the Jewish person has now because they look at what? They don't realize that the law, the commandments, the sanctuary, the um, ceremonial laws, the sacrifices and the priesthood is also passing away. They don't want to see that it's passing. I want to see it real. I want to see it now. I want to see it in its glory. It had glory, yes. But now we have Jesus. Take the scaffolding down, people. Now you have Jesus. Put your toys in the toolbox. Give them to your grandkids. Don't play with them anymore unless you're playing with your grandkids. Then take out the toys by all means. But we begin to see here that they, verse 14, their minds were blinded for until now the same veil remains unlifted. In other words, that veil is still there in front of the faces of the children of Israel, that Moses' veil, the veil that stops them from seeing what? The truth that this glory is faded away. They can't see that it's faded away. To them, the tabernacle is still amazing. The law is still amazing. The sacrifices are amazing. The priesthood is amazing. The problem is, is take a look, go stand on the Mount of Olives, look on the Temple Mount, show me where the priests are. Show me where the tabernacle is. Show me where the altar is. You can't see it. It has vanished. God has taken it away. And what they fail to realize is God removed this so that what? You'd only have one thing to look at. The anti-type, the completion of the type, that now you look simply at Jesus Christ. And so we see here, again in verse 14 of 2 Corinthians 3, but their minds were blinded for until this day, until Jesus Christ has come and rent the veil, until that day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil was taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil does what? It lies on their hearts. Do you realize what happened? Their, their hearts can't receive the Holy Spirit and the imprinted word of the Holy Spirit because they can only receive what? This letter of the law. 
I have to do this and I must do this and I cannot do this. And so that veil lies on their heart. They don't realize the veil was ripped. They don't realize that it was ripped from top to bottom. And as that veil was ripped from top to bottom, we understand here that this Jewish person is now stuck to see this lesser glory and can't, because of the veil of Moses and the law and the Old Testament, understand this greater glory. And so we see here in verse 15 of 2 Corinthians 3, but even to this day when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart, verse 16, nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, saying when one comes to Jesus Christ, that veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. It doesn't say there's licentiousness. You don't have a lot of sin, but there's liberty to freely walk with God and not with a list of other people's do's and don'ts, just what the Spirit places upon your heart. Verse 18, but we all with unveiled face, our face and no longer veiled, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as by the Spirit of the Lord. So now it says that we, because we don't have a veil over our face or over our heart, we're able to see Jesus Christ and just be in awe. We're able to see Jesus Christ and just be in love and, and realize you have entered in behind the veil. I now come and my acceptance with the Father isn't what I do. My acceptance with the Father isn't what I don't do. I come and I know I'm accepted by the Father because I say, Abba, Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I come to you through the work of your Son, not on my own, only in Jesus' name. And the Father says, come, beloved of the Father, come. And so we realize what our acceptance is. Now, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, it makes this statement, therefore, since we have this ministry, in other words, the declaration that the Old Testament are only types, we have this new ministry because we're unveiled in our face, unveiled in our heart, and we're realizing the Spirit says, come, come, doesn't the Spirit say, come. And that's what we see in Revelation. The Spirit says, come, therefore, since we have this ministry, chapter 4, verse 1 of 2 Corinthians as we have this ministry, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in the craftiness nor the handling of the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending yourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. We begin to tell people of Jesus Christ, verse 3, it says this, but even if our gospel is veiled... Notice what it says, if our gospel is veiled, when you begin to talk to people, there are some people who still have what? The veil of Moses. The veil that says, I can't see that it's passed away. I can't see that it's already gone. They can't understand that everything in the Old Testament, as glorious as it is, now amounts to what? Only a type. It's just a type in comparison. doesn't mean that it didn't have glory. doesn't mean that it doesn't have value. It just means that compared to Jesus Christ, it is only a type. And so we see in verse 3, but even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. 
if a person can't have that veil of Moses lifted, and how do we know that, that they are, are, um, are perishing? Because in verse 15 of chapter 3 here of 2 Corinthians, it says, but even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. If they come to the Lord, that veil is taken away. Now, it's, it might be. No, it is. Now you understand and I think what happens is the author of Hebrews really tries to point out how important it is to see this veil itself in the context of the sanctuary. Because now we understand that that veil that's in the context of the sanctuary on the spiritual level is the same veil that Moses put over his face that people couldn't see. This glory's going. This glory's going. The glory's gone in respect to the new glory that's come. And so we see here, back in our text of 2 Corinthians 4, 3, but even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, in other words, he's now tabernacling among us, he's the true tabernacle as we see, who is the image of God, should shine on them. In other words, they're stuck in the shadow. They don't want to be coming into this new glorious light. They'd rather be in this dark shadow. Now, verse 5, for we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ the Lord, and ourselves your bondservant for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of the darkness, who is shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We now understand this heart, and then it says in verse 7, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not in us, that we realize it's not me, it is the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God who's lifted the veil to allow me to see Jesus, who lifted the veil off my heart to allow me to receive the Spirit. And so, when you take a look at that context, now come into Hebrews chapter 9, verse 3, where it says, And behind the veil, the second part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, and it declares all those things of what was there. Verse 6 of Hebrews 9 says, And when these things had been thus prepared, the priest always went into the first part of the tabernacle, performing the services, but into the second part, that is behind the veil, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sin, committing in ignorance. Verse 8, the Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all, in other words, the way through the veil, was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle and the first temple were standing. See, they didn't understand it. Now, when was the veil rent? It just so happens that when Jesus was there on the cross and he said these words, it is finished. Rip. You have bold access now to come behind this veil into the very presence of God. And so understand, and just in case you're thinking, but it's, it's, it's in the sanctuary, and I can't see it, and I can't know this. What does God do? Well, after he rents that veil, 
the very tabernacle itself, not one stone is left upon another. The very tabernacle itself is taken down stone by stone by stone. And we have now what? The more perfect tabernacle. The better covenant. And in comparison, we now begin to witness and see the very glory of God because all these things within this veil, it is now rent. We have access. And he says this, you can come now boldly or you can do what? Or you can put another veil. See, this veil here was rent. And now you have a choice to either come boldly in or put another veil. That's Moses' veil that we see in 2 Corinthians 3. You can allow that veil to come over your face, that veil to come over your heart, and you'll never enter in. But if you want to say, that veil is gone, that veil is rent spiritually as this veil was rent physically. And I don't have to deal with what was passing away. I now enter into the very glory of God that will never, ever pass away. So think about what this means. That here, only the high priest had access. Now realize this. That where everyone could actually see the work on the outside, the altar, but couldn't see what was going on on the inside... Now everyone can see the work of Jesus Christ and they can have that ministry that he provides through the understanding of the Holy Spirit and our understanding is greatly increased as we do what? As we look to the Old Testament, as we look to every different type and every different shadow and all the different things that here we see this was God saying, I'm going to show you how wicked your heart is, but how loving my heart is. And you can't change you, I will change you. You can't, don't change yourself on the outside. Just invite me to cleanse you through the work of Jesus Christ and I'll come in and I'll change you from the inside. This is that work of the Spirit. This is what we can receive when what? When we take away Moses' veil. When we take away the rules and regulations and adherence to the Old Testament because what was glorious is now old, is now vanished away, and is really only a type. As glorious as it was and as necessary as it is in comparison to Jesus Christ, it's nothing. Because why? Jesus is so much better. Amen? Amen. Well, Father, we do thank you for just an understanding. As we would look at this veil and we would see that this veil is just one instance in Jesus, how you are so much better. That we can look at every single aspect of the law, every single commandment, every ordinance, every part of the tabernacle, every institution of the sacrifice and what it means. And it all just points to you, Jesus. It just points to one more thing that you are the fulfillment of. That you have taken us who we've been separated by our own sin and we have no access to you. And yet you've wiped away our sin and said, come boldly behind this veil. Come into the presence that I have entered and be with me and come and behold the Father. Stay here. Have an intimate personal, long-term relationship that 
could never be possible with Moses, but is so possible with you, Jesus. All we have to do is believe and receive and walk. So knit us to this heart, we ask in Jesus' name and all the saints of God said, Amen. Amen.